I mean, the reason I wrote it was because um, it was only a couple of years after the near, the near death experience. You know, I, uh, I say attempted suicide, but actually I was successful and came back. And so this was 1994. Dr. Kevorkian was on the front page. This is, you know, the, the beginnings of assisted suicide. Um, I watched Thelma and Louise on TV. They drive off a cliff at the end. And then Kurt Cobain killed himself. And that was it for me. I knew there are people, there are kids who are going to take their lives because he did. So, you know, that was why I wrote it was to really forward a conversation for there's more to life. There's, uh, you know, there are other choices. So why make that choice when you're at the bottom, when you can't unmake that choice? Hello everyone. That was a clip of today's guest, Angie Fenimore talking about her decision to write her book, Beyond the Darkness, My Near-Death Journey to the Edge of Hell and Back. In it, Angie talks about a distressing, but ultimately transformative near-death experience that came about as the result of an attempted suicide. I read the book several years ago, and I was left with the feeling that it offered a really powerful and important perspective on the conversation around suicide prevention. And I was delighted to have the opportunity to ask Angie about that. I also think the book offers insight into understanding near-death experience, and in particular, the more difficult to understand distressing NDEs. And towards the end, I ask Angie some more philosophical questions about how she interprets the whole experience, now having had 25 years to reflect upon it, and what her life has been like since then, as she's attempted to integrate it. I started off by asking Angie to tell us about her backstory, about the events in her life that led up to the attempted suicide and the ensuing near-death experience. So um, I had what you might call a traumatic childhood. Uh, my mother left us when I was nine, left us with our alcoholic father. Um, he was ill-equipped to take care of two little girls. I was the older of the two of us. And uh, my mom joined a cult, um, like no kidding, bonafide cult. And I was visiting her over Thanksgiving one uh, year and there was a little boy that they were starving. Now, mind you, this place was deep in the recesses of Bryce Canyon, a five mile hike in, okay, into the mountains of Utah. Um, there was no power. Everyone lived in teepees. And this little boy was my age, he was nine. Um, his name is Petey. I've actually since like been communicating with him because I had to know if he turned out. And they had him in a teepee across the river from everybody else. He was allowed bread and water once a day in his underwear and that was it. And they did systematically shave heads take shoes to keep kids from running away. Now, there were a lot of adults there too, but there were a lot of children. So Petey was starving, clearly. They rang the dinner bell and um, Petey begged us for food. Well, all of the resident children knew better and, you know, hightailed it out of there, went to go have their dinner. And I told him, meet me under the cook shack uh, when it gets dark and I will bring out a plate of food. Well, they had turkey and all this stuff. So I piled this big, huge plate of food out um, up for him and I met him under the cook shack and one of the other kids ratted me out and they called me to the hot seat that um, next day where this was run by a uh, psychologist who's since done time and lost his license, obviously. But anyway, uh, he said, Angie broke one of our rules, we're not gonna feed her. Looked at my mother, for her approval. And I thought, are you kidding me? 
this is not going to fly. And I look at my mother and she's so gone. She was just, I could just see the humiliation and devastation, both the shame on her face. And she agreed to it. So like, not such a big deal for me. Like, I think I went without two meals or something, but the moment itself was the impetus. Like I can trace everything back to that moment. Um, it was at that point that I decided my mother doesn't love me. I'm unwanted. Um, basically like I was a mistake. That was my experience with myself mistake. And then things went um, from frying pan to the fire when I got married very young, 19 years old. And um, the marriage was abusive. Um, you didn't talk about this kind of thing back then. Um, a lot of gaslighting going on. So I was like surrounded in this new world that I felt like I'd created when I was like hoping to get out of the circumstances I was in um, that was actually worse. And I had two little boys. And then um, what finally happened for me was just kind of the split in who I wanted to be, who I believed I was, and then my behavior. And they did not match. And so it wasn't just depression, you know, that I was dealing with and anxiety, which I was dealing with like very profoundly at the time. But it was also that I had no say so in my actions. So just leading up to um, the suicide attempt. I would do this thing every six months, okay? And this was very typical of the kind of thing I do. I lived on the island of Okinawa in Japan. Like really, you can drive any direction an hour and a half and you're gonna hit water. It's really hard to get lost on that island, right? And um, I have no idea what my thought process were that led me to this, but I went out to get a gallon of milk and I didn't come back for like two or three days. I just didn't come back. I um, slept in my car, went to the beach, went to the store, got food, went and saw Flatliners, the movie, the, the original Flatliners, um, and finally went home. And then my children and my husband were on the, the ground on their knees praying that I'd be safe. And here I was, had disappeared. And I think it was two days actually. So, um, and I didn't say a word really. My husband was afraid to ask me, where have you been? What have you been up to? And the next morning uh, is when it kind of hit me. My oldest boy, who was about five, um, was so angry, just so angry. And then my two-year-old wouldn't let me touch him. So I just had the experience. I can't keep putting my children through this. I don't understand what's happening to me. I have no control over it. And mind you, I had gotten help. I had seen counselors and nobody had any answers for me. And um, that was it. It was that my children were better with all, out with all, my children were better off without me. So that's what I did. And I waited till the next night when everyone was asleep. And um, the first thing I did is I slit my wrist with um, a broken apart safety razor, which was really ineffective. I didn't know how anybody did that, but I did leave pretty deep scars on my wrist. Um, but then I started taking everything in the medicine cabinet. And um, I took it at first a whole bunch of stuff, you know, and of course it came up. And so then I sipped and swallowed through the night so that I could hold it down. And then um, in the morning at about 10 a.m., 11 a.m., I sent my boys off to a neighbor with a note, just said, I'm not feeling good. And 
then I could feel it happening. Um, it was this profound, extremely loud, like vibrating kind of inescapable energy, like this rattle, like an earthquake or like an airplane is coming down into the living room like that. And I could feel it in my body. Um, by this time I'm laying down on the couch um, and I also have a knowing of what's going on. Wow, it's happening. So I'm laying on the couch. At first I thought it was a jet coming down and I peeked out my window and it was clearly happening inside of my body. And I knew like, this is it. Well, I'd had a stepmother who had had a near-death experience and she'd gone to the corner of the room. So that's what I expected. So I uh, wanted to watch because that's the state of mind I was in. I was not well, I wasn't healthy and I was dark. It was dark time for my life. And I wanted to watch and see this happen. So I opened my eyes and as soon as I did, I could feel my body just like back into my body. I could feel my spirit and my body reconnect. So I closed my eyes again, and then I could feel this energy. I could feel it separating. I knew I was out of my body, opened my eyes to watch, back in my body. So I did that a couple of times, and then finally it was just like, okay, opening my eyes, that is disrupting this process and closing my eyes. So I, I pressed my eyes closed, and suddenly I was swallowed up in the experience. Um, I had the experience of being like this and being squeezed and being pushed. And what I'm seeing is this yellow membrane with these red like capillaries running through it. And I'm experiencing emotionally this euphoria at the same time. And then I'm pushed through this tunnel. And it wasn't until later I realized that was my birth because then the next thing I see is my mother cradling me. And I look so much like her, I was confused and thought that I was looking at myself at first. But then I realized I'm feeling everything. I can experience everybody's points of view. And my mother was 18 when she had me. And um, that was when I got, wow, she loved me, she wanted me. And that euphoria that I was experiencing, that was in the birth canal, that was my own. I wanna be here, like my choice to live, but it was also hers, her desire to have me. Mm -hmm. So that was just a complete surprise to me. The first of many. And uh, so then I went through my life beginning to end. Every moment of my life, um, parts of it were just rushed through, not important, but parts of it were slowed down so that I could experience. And the point of it was experience how everybody else around me experienced. So out of that, it's like exoneration and patience and love and forgiveness for my father, for my mother. Um, and then also getting how my actions impacted others. That was the big one right? Um, I mean, at the time, I really, truly hated my husband. You know, it was abusive. And, but suddenly I'm seeing through his point of view. I'm getting, wow, he just got what I got. He got a set of circumstances. He got a set of parents. He got his DNA. And then he got all of his experience that led up to how he was the way he was when, you know, and I had contributed somewhat to that. So I was able to see completely. And then it came all the way to the end. And um, I was pretty excited, wow, I'm dead. I knew I was dead. And it came all the way to the point where I was lying on the couch. And then suddenly I was surrounded by darkness. But it wasn't like if you switch off the light in a room where you can see nothing in front of you. It's like outer space kind of darkness where you can see 
what's out there, but it's dark. There's nothing but blackness, right? And um, I expected to see dead loved ones. So I'm looking around for them. Um, and I hear a voice next to me. And I recognize the voice. I know that I know this. Um, this I want to say person, but I know I know who this you know is. I know it's male. And he just says, this is it. This is the life you lived. Like no drama, no significance, just plain and simple. This is it. This is your life. This is the life you lived. And as I swing my head to the right, looking for people that maybe like my grandmother, my uncle, a cousin who had passed, there's a line of teenagers standing next to me. There's about six of them, seven of them. And I lean over and I look at them and I'm not moving my mouth. Okay. I'm not speaking any audible words. But I can hear my thoughts and I know that they're out there. I realize that they're out there because I lean over and I look at them and they are dead empty like I've never seen. Like still to this day, I've never seen death like that. It's beyond death that we experience here in physical form. And I say, oh, we must be the suicides. In my head, but it's out. And the kid standing next to me, um, he was all decked out like, you know, eyeliner, dyed black hair, uh, leather boots and he looked down at me and then looked back up dead and empty and i knew he'd heard me and then the moment i said that or spoke it or thought it and it was out there it was an acknowledgement that number one i'm dead number two i've committed suicide number three i expect that there's going to be some kind of expectation like i have an expectation for how this is going to go and um suddenly i am taken from them I am flying at, I don't know how fast, like speed of light, I don't even know, tremendous speed upright through this darkness. I don't know how far I traveled. Um, could have been truthfully the length of the planet or a football field through this um, darkness. And then suddenly I slow down and I see ahead of me this beltway. Um, and mind you, there's nothing beneath supporting everybody, but it's just like this stretch of people. And I know that there are invisible boundaries to this and it goes for as far as I can see on the left. And the word that came to me is thousands. Okay, that is the word that came to me and it was external. Um, I'd say it was about 30 or so feet deep, something like that and went for as far as I could see on the left. and. I ask in my mind, what is this? And the word I hear is purgatory, which is very interesting because I do not have a Catholic upbringing. That was the word, okay? And then I'm suddenly dropped, like lit down into this place with these others. And I look around and everybody is in these filthy white robes, which I thought was very interesting because who knew that that would be literal <laughs> and they're wandering around and they appear to be talking to themselves. And they're saying things like, if only you had so-and-so, then I wouldn't have had to done, like defending themselves. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or carrying on about their story, whatever that is, or their grief. And some of them are like nothing, just standing there. Some of them are wailing, oblivious to everybody else, but there's no interaction between these people, none. Here they are surrounded by people and no interaction and that's when I well there were a couple of things that I noticed um, one was that there was a piece of furniture um, was like a, a, a American vanity 
And I didn't understand the meaning of that until years later, but it was kind of crackling in and out of, of um, existence, kind of like, I don't know, an apparition. And then there was also a chair, an old school chair. And I, I to this day, can't tell you why the old school chair, but I, but I do know the vanity. And then there was this man and he was squatting. He was in front of me, a couple feet in front of me. And he was looking at me. And he was the only one that there was any connection to, but it wasn't even a connection. He was just observing me. Kind of the way you observe people when you're driving or, you know, in the grocery store, not really just like how you can walk past somebody and not smile. Yeah, yeah like that, right? Only just no connection. And I noticed that he's, everything's in grayscale. I know that he's got blue eyes, but I'm not seeing color. I know that he's been there a long time maybe thousands of years. And I know that he's committed suicide. And I just know these things. Um, and so I had a thought, I wonder if this is Judas Iscariot. And that thought was a testimony. It was an acknowledgement that I believe in a Christ, that I believe in a God. And I do believe that that is what triggered the rest of us. And this is why I'm here is um so i had this thought and suddenly there was a pinpoint of light in the distance and i hear a voice at the same time as i'm watching this light travel this distance to me uh, at the speed of light um and the voice says is this what you really want well i had never like even considered that this was what i want it was what i had to do in my view and so this light comes to the edge of this barrier, whatever this is, and it's a man, like in the shape of a man, and he's made of light, and his hair is flowing, and his robes are flowing, but he's just beautiful and made of light. And um, I say, but my life is so hard. And all of this is just like this uh, energy exchange, thought exchange, and it's just bam, 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 bam. And he says, well, you can't skip over parts. It's supposed to be hard. Um, you know, you've done a lot of nonsense in your life. <laughs> was kind of the message that I got that I'd been, you know, even though my life had been really, you know, hell. Um, and I really felt like I couldn't have changed anything. Like the message that I got is that I've always been, I've always been in charge. And that this was all part of it the experiences that, that I was having was part of this grand experience and that was for my good. And then, um, and I was still just, I, you know, kind of dumbfounded, number one, that processing that I'm having this conversation with who I need to be God. And then, um, but obviously it wasn't going anywhere because I was pretty determined that I couldn't be or do anything different than what I had already been doing and having. So then I hear this other voice, and it is the same voice that was with me at the beginning of my near-death experience that said, this is your life. And I hear him, but I cannot see him. And he is next to this being of light that I'm talking to, but there's some kind of a barrier, and I can't see him. But I hear his voice, and he says, don't you understand I did this for you? And when he says that, I see these pinpricks of light start to appear, and then suddenly... All these things happened at the same time. I am suddenly behind these two beings of light. Um, 
and they are having this energetic conversation back and forth like lightning exchanging information and um the one who i knew to be christ was like transferring my life experience to this other being who i knew to be god or my heavenly father transferring this information and he says she doesn't understand and at the same time i'm still out in that darkness in that beltway watching this happen and i can see myself standing there and then i had a third perspective and that was within the body of christ 2000 years ago when he was in the garden of gethsemane like experiencing my life as if it was his own and then i came to understand that that is what happened in the garden of gethsemane it wasn't just this you know uh sterile kind of you know blood from every pore experience it was like he experienced my life from the beginning to the end as if it was his own like he got my point of view but he did that for everybody everybody and so as soon as like i see that and experience that i am still like okay but i still can't do anything different and then i was shown my children i had two boys at the time i now have five children um but i um yeah i have grandchildren and um they're almost all grown now but i saw what would happen to my oldest first and uh what i saw was kind of an emotional roller coaster like the emotional footprint of his life and up till about 21 and he was rendered incapable of doing anything he was meant to do here he was filled with darkness just like the kid that was standing ne next to me the teenager right after i passed and um and that was because i took my life and then i was shown my second child and he was taken to be about seven or eight years old and he was taken his life ended because he couldn't do this without his mother and when i saw that in that moment I just like issued this very, very tiny, okay, that was it, like barely a thought. And then whew, I was up and out of there. I was hovering above this beltway, surrounded by angels. And I said, what is this? And um, I was told, well, they've been helping you, <laughs> helping you, they always have been. And they're preparing the earth. And uh, what I was told is we didn't get past about 2015 and I actually saw this come and happen um, that the world doesn't change that people don't change and that um, the world goes through a balance shift and um, from ignorance to responsibility taking responsibility um, and I was just as I traveled back to my body I was just filled with all of this information knowledge all that was meant specifically for me but i think benefits other people too mm -hmm. and then i opened my eyes and there i was on the couch and uh my uh husband at the time was walking through the front door he worked at norad like they don't come home for lunch <laughs> and uh, he came and he sat down on the couch and he says um he actually he didn't say anything he just looked at me um and he knew something was up with me obviously and I just said, you're never going to believe this. And he says, I think I might. <laughs> I told him and I kept it to myself for a long time until um, I felt called actually to share it, to support people who are dealing with life. I mean, the big message I got was, wow, this is just a second, really, in the grand scheme. It's just a moment. And 
that even those who are experiencing the worst of the worst that our planet has to offer people, it comes to an end and it's like it was a dream. And there's complete healing and complete exoneration. And everybody that ever harmed anybody gets to see it from their point of view. And, and there's a, you know, like a, I don't know, a redemption, if you will, where we all see from each other's perspectives. And when you see from somebody else's point of view, there is nothing but forgiveness, gratitude, love. That's all that's there. So. Well, thank you for running through that. I've read mm -hmm. that story a couple of times or more. It's incredible to hear you talk through it. I just have a couple of questions, yeah. like short questions to clarify the narrative, and then we'll move yes, yes. on um, to talking about the importance of the work. So, Firstly, when I read about near-death experience accounts, um, people are asked, well, what was it like when you were in this experience? Because it sounds very dreamlike. So was it like a dream or was it like reality or was it like more real than reality? Mm -hmm. um, and I just want to give people that sense who maybe aren't familiar with that. Of, of right. what, was it, what, what, what was the quality of the experience like for you when you were going through it? So we have layers of experience as a human being. One of them is our physical experience, waking, like what you and I are doing right now, awake. And because we are human beings in physical form, living in a physical world that is measured by the rotation of the planets, that's how we measure time, we relate to this like it's real. This is real, this is solid, this is real. So this is our baseline for reality. But dream state is actually, um, it's like an in-between space where you can access higher forms of reality. That's how come sometimes you'll have dreams that are, like that was very real. Like you'll have a loved one come visit you in a dream. It's because when you're operating in this physical form, you're not in the space where you can see anything but concrete. And that happens in a more fluid, more hyper reality. Now, near-death experience, that's like an altogether, that's a whole nother world. And though travel happens kind of like dream, or speaking happens kind of like dream where suddenly things are before you and all of a sudden you understand, you know, a millennia of things, or you can see the future. It's just the reason that it happens sort of dreamlike is because it's not happening in Kron because you're not in physical, you're in spiritual. Mm -hmm. So all things you can see and experience all things, but this is beyond any kind of any kind of reality that we experience here in physical, while we're dreaming, vision. Okay, so it's not just the content of the experience, very no. interesting, but the actual fabric of the experience itself was something completely new. Yes. When you went through it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask about was, you mentioned your stepmother had had a near-death experience. Okay. And you mentioned that you had some expectation then because of that. Now, I, I recall from the book that her near-death experience was like being wrapped in this blanket of love and it was a place she didn't want to come back from, but she felt called to do so for some reason she right. could recall. I, I'm curious to know how much that influenced you and your expectation of what you might find. Did you, did you feel you were going to this place of all loving light and did that encourage you to, to go? Well, I was hoping for... Um complete and finite non-existence okay that's what i was hoping for which isn't to say i didn't have you know everything in the background that it it's like you re actually do remember things like your birth 
It's just, you don't have recall, right? To those things. And so, you know, I call this, it's like taking a 5,000 piece puzzle and throwing it in the air. It looks like chaos, right? But those pieces come down in order. So everything that I experienced, including having um, my stepmother, who number one, had a near-death experience, and number two, really despised me. Um, and number three, suffered from bipolar disorder and severe migraines. And, you know, back then, all they could treat those migraines with was Percocet. And she'd been abused, severely abused. Um, so all of it mattered, not just like one piece of it. Because the truth of it is, is, you know, when I wrote that book, what mattered to me was, and what mattered to me at the time of the near-death experience was my stepmother's experience with near-death experience. But in the last 25 years, her, my experience as, you know, her being my stepmother and having all this trapped anger and, you know, it, it's been my grappling with coming to terms with that and learning to forgive somebody that was so cruel to me that has actually, you know, had the greater impact on my life if you look now at my life. But so all of it, all of it. Okay. So maybe prior to me asking about the the impact your work has had on, on suicide and how you've seen that. I'd really like to know what it was like for you post the experience, because your book ends relatively soon after the experience. Mm -hmm. And I think in the, the early days of near-death experience accounts becoming more public, there was this sense that it was all sunshine and roses for the experiences ever after. And every problem was yeah. fixed and they floated on this cloud of enlightenment. Um, and then that, that kind of broke down a bit um, with longer study and actually people found that it was difficult to live with the, the knowledge they brought in. Their families didn't understand them. Uh, they often had no interest in the career they pursued up until that point. Uh, the divorce rate is exceptionally high amongst people who, um, who have near-death experience. So what was it like for you? Was, it, was there a complete healing shift in your psychology as a direct result of the experience? Or was it like, okay, this is day one and now it's an uphill struggle? What, what was the, that time like? Well, considering I was coming back from a suicide attempt, hmm. you know, I had hit rock bottom and I didn't come back the same human being. I was not the same human being. People didn't recognize me or know me. I was the girl who wore black all the time. And um, so the first thing that I noticed was number one, that the window didn't close um, when I came back. So frankly, I see dead people. I do. Um, like communication with people on the other side or dreams or um, just even just seeing this life as, I don't know, it's just like nothing is ever a very big deal for me anymore. Um, so there's that. Um, and there was no language at the time for near-death experience. It was just being developed. Mm -hmm. So part of what I dealt with when I come back, came back was they're going to think I'm crazy, <laughs> you know, because it's like all the same symptoms of schizophrenia. <laughs> um, but what I quickly found out when I started talking to people and speaking publicly is were the, there were a lot of people that have had near-death experiences, number one, and number two, a lot of people who've dealt with suicide or suicidal ideations. Mm -hmm. So for me, 
you know, it's really funny because people will say they will call mine a negative near-death experience and nothing could be further from the truth. For me, it was like, that's the day in a lot of ways that I was born and my marriage did fall apart. And I've been married a few times since, but I'm now married to the love of my life. I'm in my fifties. I have, I, I mean, I'm turning 55 here in a month and I'm finally with the love of my life. We've been together for about five years. I'm watching my grandchildren, you know, start to grow up and it, life is just sweet. And I'm really, there's a whole lot of freedom too, for me that I can actually say whatever I'm dealing with. You know, I remember one time my second marriage ended in fiasco and, um, uh, yeah, just to make it short and brief, he had cheated on me. So we're out shopping and, you know, I'm trying to decide if I'm staying in this marriage or not. And the girl on the other side of the counter says, how are you? And I'm like, well, let me tell you. And I'm like, Bleh. and then, <gasps> right. And it's not like that extreme, but there's no pressure anymore. I don't feel any pressure to keep up appearances. You know, I'll put on my hair and my, I'll do my hair and my makeup for you for an interview, but really <laughs> that's about it. I've really okayed my own skin, but not only that, everyone in my world has the freedom to be themselves mm -hmm. and to not have it figured out. So no, near-death experiencers, I don't think any of us have stuff figured out. We have some things that become true, like true north for us. But what happened instead was a freedom for everyone around me to just really be alive and okay and experience what they're experiencing. And, and was that like, with regard to the more inner part of that, you mentioned coming to forgive your stepmother, probably the other people in your life mm -hmm. too. Was that a kind of spiritual process that you struggled with and journeyed with? Yeah. And I don't think anything is finite. It's like you have to redeal, you know, yeah. like something will trigger something. You'll have an experience that triggers that old memory. And then it's like, there it is in your face again. So it's a process. Forgiveness is a choice all the time. It's like, okay, this is a new choice now. Um, I will say for my father, it's complete. Um, he passed in, it was 19 years ago, um, just a couple of days ago, mm -hmm. 19 years. And the conversation that we had on his deathbed, he was very concerned about passing over and he was resisting it. Um, he was having what's called near-death visions where people mm. in his life that have passed on come to get them, right? And uh, he finally says to me, Ange, I'm not a child molester. And I said, Dad, look at me. I turned out. You can own that. Okay. I turned out. And so it wasn't like a brushing it under the rug or anything like that. It was an acknowledgement, which he needed in order to, you know, to unburden himself. And part of that unburdening included my acknowledgement of it, not saying it's okay, yeah. saying, look, I turned out, own that, okay, and I love you, and I was forgiven, right? Um, so that is complete, but, um, you know, but there are times, there are moments when it's like I'm dealing with something, it's like, oh, my dad, you know. If only he had. But so yeah, we're still human beings. Sure, right? yeah, and deal it's, with what it's really going to say but... that because it doesn't set up a kind of superhuman archetype, right? No, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, 
moving on to perhaps what is the central question I want to ask, central questions I want to ask you. I um, I checked today and I bought your book six years ago. Okay, and I looked on Amazon and um, and I don't know, I can't recall quite what prompted me, but I certainly remember the effect of it. And that I um, I wouldn't wish to exaggerate this at all, but I've certainly had like a certain degree of suicidal ideation. Okay, now I, I wouldn't, as I say, I wouldn't wish to exaggerate it. I don't think I was ever in like a risk category, but mm-hmm. when life um, is challenging at times and feels impossible, there is that sense of I'd rather not be here. You mm-hmm. know, I'd rather check out and and maybe you know there's an there's an imagining in me of going to the kind of place I've read about in near death experience, for example, of like why well, I just don't get on in this world. And it's kind of like you know when you're at a party and it's good for a while, but you don't want to sit there at three in the morning when everyone's leaving. It's time, you know. I've certainly had that kind of ideation, so I can um, have a, a you know something of an understanding of it you know, the people. Um, yeah. And I think that there's always been factors that maybe um, prevent me from taking that too far, but certainly a major one that really shifted my perception was, was reading your book. Okay. Cause what it really leaps off the page is the clarity of the sense of like, Oh, well, it's not actually a solution to anything. You don't, you know, it's just, it's just a continuation. Exactly. And it, it's so true, of course, because like when we try and escape our problems in life by running away from them, we just find they reoccur in the next situations. I think people can probably relate to it on that level. Um, but it really like, um, it really nailed that down for me. And hence why I contacted you these years later, because it's always been in my mind, this is a really powerful resource. And it's a resource that I've mentioned to people, I've sent videos to people over the years who have said that they're struggling with suicidal ideation and they're concerned about what would happen next. You know, if they did do it, where, where would they go? What would become of them? Right. Would they go to a pit of fire for all eternity? Okay, would they Yeah, be... I get emailed daily from people asking that very question. So really whatever you'd like to say about that from the experiences that drove you to um, write the book and because, you know, it's a big thing to come out and be public about, right. you know, it, I appreciate you yeah. doing Well, uh, thank you. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I know you were concerned about the popularity of positive NDE accounts. Um, a lady called Betty uh, Edie wrote forward who'd written such an account. And then I'd love to know about the kind of emails you've received, the kind of responses sure. it's got. Re- I mean, I'll ask you some questions about where, where it might be more difficult uh, in a bit, but really on in terms of how it's how people have related to it and how you've seen it help people. Okay, so first, like there, are, it's a twofold answer to your question about why I wrote it. So first was, um, like my stand is no more suicide. Like it's not a solution. It's just not. I don't care what your belief system is, whatever it is, it's just not a solution because that's just not how. You can just look for the evidence around us. That's not how it works, right? There, there's always. Um, there's always resolution to everything. There's all, it's, it's light and dark. It's um, always yin and yang. That's what it is, right? It's not a solution. Um, so there was that, but, um, you know, it was seeing all these uh, positive, so-called positive near-death experiences, right? Where people go to like a pillar of light, um, tunnel of light, all that. Um, and I knew that that's not the only way that it can go. And I felt completely strongly that people need to know that it's not always like that. 
and that I was so grateful that I came back. But um, in the process of writing the book, um, I had concerns about so many things. Um, I mean, like if you're going to quote God, it better be accurate, right? And this went from, I had the idea to write it, literally the idea to book deal with the biggest publisher house in the world, publishing house in the world, who it was around the shelves four months later, I hadn't even written anything, multiple languages, like it was overnight, right? Um, but during this time, this was one of the times in my life when I was so spiritually, spiritually connected, like really I could hear God's voice daily guiding me. And um, I was told, it is going to make it to the hands of every person that's supposed to make it to. So I can relax and let go of that. So it's not an accident that you read it, Richard. It's not an accident that you found it. It always finds the people it's meant to find. And I can tell you that so even 20 years later, more so even 24 years, 20 years later when, you know, I get an email from people asking me, they ask me three specific things. Mm -hmm. The first is, um, where will I go if I die? If I take my life, they don't come right out and say it. And, um, you know, I'll send you an email that you can share with your listeners if you'd like. Mm -hmm. um, my answer to them is far more than just don't do it. It's like pictures of my grandchildren who wouldn't be here. My son, who's, you know, I saw him get to a place of darkness, who's a nurse now. He's an RN and he's married and he's got these three wonderful kids. And, you know, he's asking me, what, what kind of pie do you want for Thanksgiving, mom? You know, because we're going to go out there. It's that. It's even though, like, romantically, like, my marriage ended, and then I was married a couple of times before I found my sweetheart. And then there's this hot air balloon ride with this man that was made for me. And I was even shown him. I had a vision, not what he looked like, but what I was looking for. And I saw us on an airplane. I had to do with a book, a book, another book going east and then that moment happened again it's like you can't just look at that moment what are you dealing with in that moment your life is a spectrum your life is this whole extension beyond your birth and your death so even if your life sucks and is tragic during the physical years of it you have all of this too and it does come around and it it, it does equal out it is balanced um, but then another question people ask me is, you know, what about my loved one? What about my sister? What about my husband who ended their life by suicide? Yeah. And, um, here's the thing. What I experienced was what I experienced and it like definitely something I wanted to share with other people, but that's just where I went based on my life and what I'd been doing and what I'd been up to. And based on my background of belief systems um like really there every near-death experience is completely packaged for you as an individual now there are commonalities hmm. certainly and i'll tell you one of them is don't kill yourself that's one of them but um it, it, it's not a it's it's n the most powerful thing you can do for somebody who's crossed over by way of suicide is number one forgive them and talk to them, you can talk to them, ask them to come talk to you. I know of four separate people who have lost loved ones to suicide and those loved ones have returned and said, I'm okay, you should know I'm okay, all right? 
I'll just, yeah, I'll pause you for a second because mm-hmm. I mentioned that I'd recommended the book and sent videos you've, you put out to people contemplating suicide. Mm-hmm. I also encounter people who've had a loved one suicide mm-hmm. and counterintuitively perhaps, and perhaps cautiously at first, but I've, I've also mentioned your work and recommended your book. And I say counterintuitively because yeah, you'd think, well, that would be the last thing, right? That mm-hmm. you want to send someone. But I found that people have that concern anyway. Like they're massively concerned about what's They happening. do. There's nothing you can do about that. Of course they do. And they're not right. looking for cotton candy, right? They're not looking for a story that says everything's okay and they're in a place with right. rainbows and bunny rabbits. And there's some, right. so it's worth saying there is, as you mentioned, there's a diversity experience and a lot of people who come back from an attempted suicide do report the love light, perhaps also of the sense of mm-hmm. Remorse at seeing the effect it would have in the future, but they do report the love light experience or all sorts of different experiences. Near death experience is not something that we've nailed down a firm understanding of um, yet, for sure. Um, but yet, yeah, people are, yeah, as I, I, just to get back on track, that people um, respond, I found really respond well to the book who have had that because they it, it gives them a sense of realism, but also a sense that all is not lost. And I know that. And something prayer. they can do. Prayer because that's is a the theme big that comes one. up in yeah. your book at times. It's been yeah. something that's very central to you. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it's relevant both both for people, people in both situations, really, because um, your book may, if people believe it, it will sort of remove suicide as an option. Okay, but then they're still stuck in their lives. They're still stuck in the life they don't want. Mm-hmm. So what do they do about mm-hmm. that? And people who have had someone go through suicide, um, it may give them, well, it gives them your experience, but then, then what do they do? Cause they've got their love, their loved one still lost. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you started addressing that, but right. please say some more about, um, well, I think it gives them something to do because the truth that like, you're not going to be able to take away that that happened. And that's probably going to be one of the most tragic things that has happened in their life. You know, it is. Um, but when we're left with the experience that there's nothing that we can do about something like the opportunity is missed especially when it's somebody who took their life. You are, everyone left in the wake is like, I could have said something or I could have done something, right? So I'm, I'm gonna recommend another book that I wrote uh, a piece of, this is a compilation, it's called, um, oh, I'm trying to think where it is. I just took them with me to a writer's conference. Um, it's called, um, oh, it's escaped me. It's Jody Orgel Brown, I can tell you that. And it's Rise Above Depression. There we go. Okay. And I, I wrote the first chapter of that. And it is filled with all kinds of things that you can do if you're struggling with, um, you know, somebody in your life leaving you that way. Um, and also if you're struggling with suicide yourself. Um, anyway, but that is, it's just been released just a few months ago. Uh, it's called Rise Above Depression. Jody Orgel Brown, and you can find that on Amazon. Um, so yeah, there are things that you can do, um, which doesn't mean that you shouldn't seek a doctor's help too. I mean, it's also brain, you know what I mean? Our brains are constructed a particular way, but you want to handle it all holistically. So there are spiritual remedies as well. And I go into detail in this book, how to use this tool that I use, where I allow these thoughts to pass through me. Like right now, um, we are in the middle of one of those periods of time for me where 
I literally, this happens to me literally daily, I will see myself either tie a scarf around my mouth and hang myself, or I'll see myself load a gun, pull it the trigger. Like I have that thought probably a hundred times a day during this period of time every year. But my relationship to it now is, well, that was an interesting thought. Don't forget to get milk while I'm out and about. It's just a thought. My brain is doing what it does during this period of time. Your emotions, your thoughts, your physical sensations, this is all wiring to keep you alive. And sometimes it doesn't serve you. Sometimes it gets miswired and takes you on down this path of like compelling you to do something different when there's no good reason for it mm -hmm. even. So, and when you're in the middle of that, it's like you can't see, right? It's kind of like asking the best heart surgeon in the world to pre perform surgery on himself. It's not happening. You have to get out of yourself and you have to be able to look at yourself separate and you have to be able to pull those thoughts, emotions, physical sensations. And when I say physical sensations, it's like when you've lost a loved one or when you have a heartbreak, where do you feel that? You feel that in your chest. You don't feel it up here where you're thinking it, do you? You feel it like a real physical sensation. You're, everything about you is all tied together including your spiritual. So you've got to set those things aside, thoughts, emotions, body sensations, and really get that that is your brain doing its thing. That's just your brain patterns. It's programming. It's not real. It's not real. And then you create with your words because that is the most powerful creation. Your words. Okay. That's why prayer is so powerful. And you create a new reality for yourself. And I mean like, um, I don't know. I love my life today. Okay. I'm going to enjoy this cup of tea, whatever that has to be in that moment. Right. Okay. Create with your words and then you match actions to your words. You take action consistent with the words you created. So like, for example, um, I created fun for my family and this was 10 years ago, we were really dealing with it. I was just out of a divorce and literally lost my house, my car, credit was trashed, <laughs> everything gone, right? And I created fun. And it's like that still lives on because I continue to create actions fun. So the result of that was my poor little four-year-old who's now 14, 15 years old, okay? He didn't have any fun in his life. He had a whole lot of, you know, running from this, bad mean stepdad and like where am I going to go to school now it was not good right and my older boy got a birthday money from his dad and says I'm taking the whole family to an amusement park that's what we're doing and so they check you know we're going through the turnstiles to go to this amusement park and this is right after I create fun right when they're middle of like one of the hardest times of our life and they stamp us with that stamp you know so you can get in and out of the park it says fun Okay, that's not an accident, right? But I continue to live this, and that is how our life is, because it's a constant. It's a constant, but I'm creating it with my words, then I'm matching the action, so it's become this thing that it's just, that's how I'm wired now. So I can be having thoughts, load a shotgun, put it in your mouth. I can have that thought a thousand times a day, but I'll tell you what overrides. Fun. Commitment to my family. Um, making a difference for other people. Those things override that wiring, what you're committed to. And you get to say, like you speak it, 
And then as soon as you marry actions, you actually alter your brain wiring. You create new neural pathways. Okay, so that's just one element of healing. And, and you need that spiritual, whatever that looks like for you. For me, I talk to my tree a whole lot because my tree, I can still see on a molecular level. I can see the light that that tree's made of. I can see that that tree is a, you know, it's an angel in my heart and talks directly to God, is aligned with all the wood in my house. And that tree emanates everyone who walks through the threshold of my, you know, house, through my door, healing, peace, and empowerment for what you're here on this planet for. Like, that's what my house resonates with. So I talk to my tree. That's part of my spiritual well-being and i'm okay that it sounds like schizophrenia it's not right so do you see what i'm saying it's Absolutely. all of it yeah yeah so for wherever you are you know i mean for whether or not you deal with suicidal ideations or if you've lost a loved one to suicide um wherever you are it's like you want to heal from all access points and healing is flow by the way, it's not just like, oh, boom, done. You know, blood running through your body creates life. Air in and out creates life. When those two things stop, life stops. If you look at the planet, water, you look at money, currency, it's the flow of energy that creates life. So if this is ongoing. Forgiveness is ongoing. Healing is ongoing, right? Thank you very much for that. And you will link to the books below, both of the books you mentioned. I might just start to draw to a close, just um, just to lighten things a bit with a bit of a philosophical question, a more philosophical kind of question on the nature of near-death experience. That You wrote the book back in the 90s, as you've mentioned, there wasn't as much around. And the book is written, it's written in quite a Christian context. Um, mm -hmm. I wonder now, 20, 25 years on, how you view that. Um, yeah. Right because a lot has come out there's been very yeah. popular um near-death experience books written uh, that have reached big audiences from different perspectives really powerful healing books sometimes mm -hmm. as well like um i i believe I've, I've spotted you mention um uh the even alexandra's book okay which mm -hmm. is very famous. i spotted you mentioned it and it, it rang a bell when you mentioned about the experience of being born okay because um and how healing that was to see your mother loving you because even alexander was adopted and always carried this sense of being thrown away and in the near-death experience that that initial core feeling of abandonment healed right so you, you've got these wonderful healing books and then you've got big scientific studies done now um mm -hmm. assessing that people you know building evidence that people do seem to be out of their bodies they can remember what the doctors are doing uh, in a way that uh, people just try and imagine it can't so all this has gone on and also this finding of a kind of cultural relativism where um buddhists tend to have buddhist type near-death experiences people meet the religious imagery that is um prominent in their culture um we've had a shift from people having religious imagery to more family-based imagery as our society has become less religious so um i'm just going to turn that over to you and whatever you think about how you view the experience differently now um any thoughts that are really prominent to you in that well you know when you when i first had the experience it occurred for me as absolute fact right um and even so, I knew that it was subject to my interpretation. I knew that even though everything that occurred for me was far more real than anything that I experienced here, far more real. Um, there were certain parts of it that like were unchangeable. And then there were certain parts of it that I know 
I know were, were my interpretation, right? But um, here's what I say. I am, I, I espouse what Gandhi said. You know, I'm a Christian, I'm a Jew, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Hindu, you know, I'm Hindu. Like, get on that horse and ride it. Whatever works for you, get on that horse and ride it. Um, I don't think that we have access to absolute truth hmm. because absolute truth would require every single point of view, wouldn't it? Hmm. Because no two people are going to experience even the same, very same event the same way. No two people, because you're never going to get everything that, everything that they experience. Like for me, like that whole event with my mother when I was nine, yeah, you don't have to feed her, that altered the way that I see everything. It altered my experience of safety. It altered the way I see authority even. Everything changed. So somebody else could have that identical experience, but have gotten nine years of a whole nother, you know, life, and they're going to interpret it differently right? So the way I see now is I don't even care what's true or not anymore. <laughs> it just like doesn't even, I got this life. That's what I know I've got. And let me tell you, I'm going to, I'm going to do what makes me happy, which is making a difference. I do what makes my life, makes me have an experience of joy and that is writing, writing books, um, writing coaching. You know, I mean, my students are really, really successful. Um, making pies, um, <laughs> talking to people. I talk to people in line at the grocery store. I actually talk to people, <laughs> you know, right? And so I'm talking to my tree. So, you know, what I say is, we spend our life, here's what we do as human beings. We spend our lives, eat, sleep, poop. That's what we do. And then we work really hard so we can have the house, so we can have the bed, the stove, the bathroom. And then there's this little sliver of life, okay? That, um, and everything that you experience falls into these two categories. And it's making a difference in entertainment. So that's where I focus. It's like, it's no fun if I'm not providing entertainment and being entertained. And I'm, and I mean like Christmas get togethers with my family that fits in entertainment and it fits in making a difference. So that's my philosophy is do what's going to make a difference for you. And I don't buy that people are, you know, I really do believe that every human being at the bottom is good and that everybody wants to be happy. And I do believe that every human being if you were to take away all the bad things that had happened to them, every human being wants to make a difference. Um, and if you want a way out of hell, that's it. You know, it's service. It changes us. So I don't know if I answered your question. I know I went on a little bit there, but perfect answer. Yeah, but yeah, that's my view. It's all good. Get on that horse and ride it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Angie. It's a mm -hmm wonderful uh, discussion interview and um really appreciate you doing it thank you you're so welcome it's my pleasure <laughs>